Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, my friends. Are you out on that early morning trail? Or maybe in the warm sunshine of a lunchtime trot? Perhaps the star-filled purity of a speedwork session at the track late at night? Well, wherever, whenever you may be. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-364 of the Run Run Live podcast. And today we chat with Steve Spear. No, not Steve Spears of the 100 Push-Ups app, who we interviewed in episode 108 of the podcast. Must have been the winter of 2008-2009. By the way, all of those episodes are on my website, runrunlive.com. There's a tab that says Podcast Index, and it has them all listed with links. I'm actually going back to listen to some of them myself and see if there isn't something interesting I can curate for the members feed. It's a bit surreal listening to yourself from the past. Time truly is a river. Today we are going to squeeze in our 2017 Boston Marathon race report, I think. (laughs) It's not the most exciting story ever told, but I guess it's a tradition now. And I think this will be the ninth Boston report that we have shared together. So, yeah, we started with my 10th Boston back in 2008, which was a little bit more epic. What a long, strange trip it's been. Anyhow, since the race report is long, I'll just jump right into our interview with Steve Spear, who ran across the USA to help get clean water to families in Africa. And you'll hear me asking about how he did this, because unlike Pete Kostelnik, who we talked about before, Steve ran across the country, and he did it at a reasonable pace of five days a week and 35 miles a day. And, you know, I could see myself doing that. I keep saying that to people. I want to run across the U.S. The leisurely way, you know, run a couple hours, maybe have a couple cocktails, run a couple more, you know, take it easy. See the sights. And I'll stick the race report in after that, and we'll call it a day. My Fridays have become increasingly frantic, but I will persevere. 
<laughs> till they drag my cold, dead podcaster body from the microphone. I took Tuesday, Wednesday off last week after the race. I dug my old steel Fuji out on Thursday and sprayed some petrochemicals on the chain and gears and pumped up the tires, went for a ride out to the rail trail. That felt nice. I went for a run in the woods in the drizzle and dark with Teresa on Friday for an hour or so, and that felt fine. It was nice to run with her, kind of cool, getting to talk in a relatively neutral setting. The Saturday, I met up with the running club to pick up litter on the Groton Road Race course, and Sunday, I got to join the club run in the morning, and it was good not to have to worry about a long workout on a Sunday morning. The marathon gave me a lot of stress this year, and I'm happy to have it in my rearview mirror. Tuesday morning, I got up and went for a run in the woods, and it was it was gray and overcast and easing into a patient drizzle. And I brought Buddy, the old wonder dog, for the first 20 minutes or so, and then went back out and did another hour. There is something so peaceful and centering for me to run this loop right outside my front door, right on the other side of my vegetable garden is the trailhead. Buddy and I cut these trails. There was nothing here except bulldozer roads and animal tracks when we moved in. And it was slated to be house lots. But over the years, it became conservation land instead. Now my house is the last on the cul-de-sac with conservation land on three sides and the trailhead on the other side of my vegetable garden. And the woods have not yet exploded in green. We are in the April showers phase, but you can sense the arboreal tension in the trees, like a pensive skeleton waiting on edge for the new leaves to burst forth. Hen turkeys with beautiful sheens of reflecting feathers dart across the trail looking for the perfect place to raise this year's brood, and wood ducks bob on the gunmetal gray undulations of the pond, all are ready. We see the gray skeleton of winter, and they sense the green wealth of spring. So I met my club Sunday, actually Saturday and Sunday. Saturday we went out, we picked up trash on the Groton Road Race course, and we spent a few hours and got two full truckloads of litter off the roads. And I suppose the most interesting thing I found was a plastic sandwich baggie with black plague and a skull and crossbones written on it with a sharpie. So what do you think that was? Some parent with a nerdy kid and a questionable sense of humor making lunch? Or more probably an empty bag of a high-powered weed? Some of that newfangled weed they have now? Or you never know, I'm now patient zero of the zombie apocalypse like I always assumed I'd be. But mostly, it was Bud Light cans and flavored vodka nips. And the engineer in me wants to plot the beer can and vodka bottle distribution, do a regression analysis, and lead an intervention to someone's door <laughs> in the suburbs. Or just wait at the liquor store with an officer and some handcuffs. I guess if you're drinking on the way to work every day, littering is pretty low on your list of worries. But like the spring... The road is clean and ready for the racers once again. It's a new year. We're going to have a great day. I'm no longer race director, so I think I may actually run the 10K. 
And that's the way life is. Life is change. Life is winter. Life is spring. As Oprah says, we aren't getting older. We're evolving. On with the show. And now for today's featured interview. So, Steve Spear. It's funny. I have another friend whose name is Steve Spears. Yeah, a lot of times it'll happen. An S can go on the end of it pretty quickly. I'm just a single spear. Just one of me. You're the tip of the... (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. And my other friend, Steve Spear, invented the 100 push-ups app for the iPhone. No kidding. Wow, man, that's pretty cool. Very good marathoner. (laughs) Oh, well, maybe there's something to the Steve Spear or Spear's name. We'll take it. Yeah. So why don't you give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do and and why we're chatting this afternoon? Yeah. My name is Steve Spear. live uh, in the Chicagoland area. I've been in Chicagoland for 25 years. Grew up on the East Coast, grew up in Vermont, but I've lived here in the Midwest uh, for quite a while, longer than I ever thought I probably would, but it's been great. We love Chicago. And uh, I uh, work full time with uh, Team World Vision, where we inspire and encourage people to run all kinds of distances, half marathons, full marathons, half and full triathlons, and even a 6K distance, all to provide clean drinking water to uh, children and families in Africa. And um, a couple of years ago, I did something a little nutty. I uh, did a transcontinental run in 2013, ran from LA to New York, and uh, that was uh, quite an experience for sure. So, But I'm quite grateful. I've had a, a very good life and 53, got two kids, wife, two dogs. So how old were you when you ran across the country, Steve? I was 50. You were 50. So was this a uh, I'm turning 50, I'm going to run across the country sort of thing? Or No, no. Furthest from, yeah, I, not even that at all. It was weird. I had only got into running, marathoning in 2007. I didn't run my first ever, first ever marathon until 2007. It was a Chicago marathon. Ran it with Team World Vision. It was the second year that Team World Vision had a group of runners at the Chicago Marathon. The whole thing, running my first marathon was a massive step out of my comfort zone, massive step beyond fears, but something kind of changed in me when I ran that first marathon and invited a bunch of friends to do it with me the the next year with Team World Vision and kind of one thing led to another, continued kind of doing my day job at the time, but ran additional marathons and some ultra marathons and just seemed like the next opportunity was the next step beyond fear, the next step out of a comfort zone until it kind of culminated with a kind of a, uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, some divine inspiration to uh, run across the United States, which I always say I'm the most unlikely guy to have done it. That's for sure. But no, it wasn't a midlife crisis thing. It was like, I think I'm supposed to do this. It was a, uh, a call, if you will. Yeah. And did you do any ultras in between then where you got some some longer distances in? Yeah, I did. I did did several 50K distances. I ran the uh, Comrades uh, 56 mile in South Africa in 2010. I did some more 50Ks. Up until the U.S. run, the longest one-time distance that I'd done was the, the 56 mile event in South Africa. Yeah, there, you've done two things that are on my bucket list, and I've been running since I was 10 years old. So, mm. uh, yeah, there you go. That's very accomplished for a short amount of time. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, If you want to do comrades, man, we send a team every year that goes. We do. We have another we have 25 uh, folks that are going in May this year. So whenever, man, we would love to have you run that event with us. It would be awesome. All right. Well, I may take you up on that. Yeah. 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 That's definitely on my bucket list. 56 is just long enough to be pretty hard. 
I've never had the desire to run a hundred miles like a lot mm-hmm. of my friends. They typically do that progression where they go right. know, 10k half marathon, marathon, 50k, 50 miler, 100 miler. It's like really you're going to run all night, <laughs> all day and all night. That doesn't sound right. fun to me at all. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, oh, that that would be fun. Believe it or not, just off the top of my head, I would guess that there's a couple hundred people every year who run across the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do different routes. Like you did what they call the hard route or the long route, which is the official route. But it's very common, right? And I've talked to people who just have pushed baby strollers without any support, just gone out and run across the United States. I've talked to people who have done the three RVs with them and the whole team and the massage therapist and everything. What was your sort of motor operations getting across the U.S.? Definitely, you've kind of called it. There's kind of supported U.S. runs and unsupported U.S. runs. We chose the supported route, which was we had an RV that our family stayed in, and then we had an RV that at any one any point in time we had one to one to three people that were a crew that would just help support some of the needs of the run. I mean, we had two big things going. Of course, I wanted to complete a U.S. run. But we also really wanted to raise an enormous amount of money as well. So we had several things that play at any given point. So we de- we definitely went the supported route because we felt like some of the objectives that we had for the run demanded more of that supported version versus the unsupported version. But yeah, but it's, it's quite interesting reading when we first kind of got the thought to do this thing. It's reading up on transcontinental runs. How many have been done? What do we know about them? It was quite an education Early, it was probably in about the first part of 2012, there's about a three-month period where we kind of went neck deep in, in, as far as just doing some investigation of the whole thing. And it was actually far less people than I thought that have actually completed transcontinental run since records were kept in the early 1900s. How many? Less than 300, actually. Um, really? Now, yeah, it's right. It kind of depends. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I just know the. I know the information we were looking at prior, so I don't want to claim it was exhaustive information. But the information that we were, the research that we had done at the time that I did the crossing, it was under 300. Usually, there are about anywhere between six and ten successful uh, transcontinental runs each year that are successful. A bunch more attempt, but um, six to ten that actually are successful in a crossing. And they're both supported or unsupported. Like you called it, there's a more heavily supported route or the one I got a, I've got some kind of a cart or something that I'm pushing or and so but it is definitely an interesting deal. That's for sure. Yeah. So most of the people I talk to who have done this uh, explain the arc of the run as being it starts out, you're all excited. And then someplace in the first third, you start getting injuries and stuff, your body starts fighting back and it gets kind of hard. And if you battle through that, then it sort of normalizes again. Your body mm-hmm, figures mm-hmm. it out and it keeps going. Is that <clears throat> experience? Yeah, I definitely had some, we, we were hoping against any run ending injuries. We had an orthopedic surgeon who was kind of a consult for me, as well as one of the physicians. They didn't travel on the road with us, but they were consults. And preparing for the run and the training that I did before the run, we knew that obviously any kind of a stress fracture, any kind of a bone break, would bring the run to a grinding halt. So we were trying to avoid that. And I saw there weren't any run ending injuries by any stretch. And there were some, I think for whatever reason, my body was in a good place ahead of the run. And I definitely had very discouraging moments. And there were times that I completely wanted to call it quits. That's for sure. But I didn't have a, a tremendous bout with injuries. I had some nuisances, things that were definitely big nuisances 
that my body had to adapt to, but I didn't struggle with a lot of the injuries that I thought maybe I might have struggled with and would struggle with. That's interesting. And did you find that it got easier towards the end, like, or just you adjusted to it? I think it became, when you start doing longer races on any level, things become more normal. They don't become more easy. And it became normal in my brain to run 35 miles a day, five days a week. And it became normal to do that. And there were days where it was, when I look back over my journals and, you know, writing about each day, there were days where it's like, it actually did become easier. I had some really good days. And then there were days that I just had awful, lousy days that I'm kind of going, how is this possible? I've been doing this now for four months. How can I feel so crappy? <laughs> it's just like it was the whole event was a roller coaster ride. And then, as we all know, with any run, it feels like it's, you know, some runs are just the, the whole thing goes well. But there are not many of those. <laughs> Most of them have the highs and the lows that we kind of typically get. Sure. And, and you can never call it, right? There's a day right. when you think it's going to stink and it's wonderful. And yep. Yep. You think it's going to be easy. And it's, it's yep. your, yeah, your body always has its own. Other thing that I've found from people, running in general is sort of a spiritual thing for a lot of people, especially the longer distances. You get a lot of time inside your own head. It's like meditation. And certainly with your background as a, as a minister, did you find some of these epiphanies or this self-awareness where you're out there and you had these sort of bright, shining aha moments where the, the sun burst through the clouds? There were definitely moments where I struggled with all kinds of things, where I would struggle with things and have epiphanies of, of struggle. But then there would be epiphanies of the bright sides of things as well. So they, those definitely existed. Obviously, there were moments. I mean, the, the whole reason that I did the run was to raise money for clean water uh, with World Vision uh, for the work that we do, uh, mainly the clean water work that Team World Vision raises money for. And and uh, what the, the 6K for water that we're really big on these days is for clean water in Africa. And that was because that was such a core element of why I was doing it. I definitely had epiphanies as I was running that kept me focused, that literally did keep me going, that were those moments of inspiration that, um, I mean, there was one in particular time. I mean, and you, people see this all the time. If you're driving across the United States, you're just driving through different parts of the U.S., but I remember one day out west running and just seeing one of these kind of medium-sized ponds of water that cattle were watering themselves out of. It's kind of a mucky thing of water, just a natural watering hole. And it would like dawn on me. I'm going. I'd been to the field. I'd been to Africa several times and visited people that we knew there and would go with them to walk for contaminated drinking water. And I looked at these. I would see this water that cows were drinking out of them going oh my goodness that's the reality of about 650 million people on the planet they, they they're drinking and fetching contaminated water so it would things like that would not only give me levels of inspiration but remind me why i was out there because it felt it felt a lot of the time very futile i mean lots of times i just felt like oh my goodness I am the craziest person on the planet. Why am I out here day after day? But you would get these reminders either through nature or through some kind of spiritual impression or just meeting and talking to people along the route as well that would give you those shots of inspiration. So some of the people I talked to have reported that time starts to move at a different pace when you're out there. Again, it's almost like meditation, right? Where, mm-hmm. where time starts to compress. You're on the road for eight hours, but you, you like miss big gaps of it, right? Do you run into any of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's a great way to the phrase it. I think that's very true. It's, it's like 
again, there were times where I was very present in, in the moment of what was transpiring over the course of a day as I was running. But then there are times you're just kind of going, oh, my, I, I just like lost. I almost felt like I was either brain dead or out of body or zombie ish. And because you are, it's when you're running, you're kind of just getting one foot in front of the other and making it happen. But when you're done running, at least uh, I never did quite get over the overwhelming sense of fatigue that was in my body over the course of that five months. It was just when I was running, I was moving. I was fine. When I was wasn't running, it was like just this these waves of fatigue and that messed with your time. Yeah, it messed with how you experienced time for sure. Yeah, part of your brain chemistry does that as well. Mm-hmm. They should study. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. It'd be but quite fascinating. Another thing you did, which is super interesting, is that you didn't go the seven days. You just did it five days at a time. And then on the weekend, you spoke at, at churches and that sort of thing. So right. do you think that helped or, or hurt? It, I think it definitely helped. It, it helped from the end. It reminded me, I mean, speaking at a church, it wasn't every Sunday, but it was a, a good share. Then it was 20 weeks across the U.S. It definitely kept me focused on why I was doing this. Um, yeah, there was a physical challenge to which was I was motivated by the physical challenge, but the, the cause kept me on point. And so speaking at a church and reminding people of why I was doing this, it kind of kept me close to that, which I was really thankful for. And whether, again, if it, I, I think it probably, maybe it helped me avoid injury, having those two non-running days. Obviously, the day that I was speaking at a church wasn't as much, I wouldn't call it a rest day when you're giving a, an address to a couple of different services on a Sunday, and then you're meeting people endlessly after the service. That's a, an exertion of energy for sure. So, but I think my short take would be it, it helped me in the way that I did it, but um, it was interesting for sure. Yeah, it probably helped with your purpose as well. You were able yeah. to pick up some connection points yep. on those those interactions the weekend that helped with your purpose alignment. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's about Gosler, right? Yeah, now. yeah. Two yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. It took, it took you three times as long. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Across the U.S. speed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of go like going into it. You know, I had no idea. Like when you know nothing about a U.S. run, you start going, well, what is I remember early on going, well, what is the world record? And once I discovered what the world record was, I'm going, well, okay, that's probably not going to happen. Not not by this guy. Not not in this first try anyway. Then I thought, well, I wonder who the oldest. Yeah, I was 50. So I figured, well, who's the oldest person to have done a U.S. crossing and found out in the research that the oldest individual is 73 years old. Yeah. That did a U.S. I'm going, well, I'm not going to be the oldest. And I thought, well, maybe I could be the first pastor. Nope. Been two other pastors and had done it before me. <laughs> so I think what we'd hope for, and we don't know this completely for sure. I've not yet come upon, but there very well could be. We're not aware of, of more money raised in an effort, but there we haven't done the exhaustive research. But we, we know that based on some of the other amounts that we've seen raised, we felt this we got a, a decent amount raised. We're grateful for that. Yeah, well, I think my friend uh, who does the um, MS Run the U.S., I think okay. she, I think she raised about the same amount of money, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood. So okay, who who she was every year? Who was that? Um, crap, I can't remember her name. Okay, because I met when I was in Valparaiso, Indiana, running through Val, Valpo, Indiana. There was an MS. She'd done it a couple of times, and, and then Ashley. And she, Ashley, I met I met Ashley in Valparaiso, yeah. Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, she's done it a bunch of times. Yeah. Yeah, and then she I know she does a relay. I mean, that's yeah. what what she was doing that summer of 2013, she was supporting a relay of runners doing the US. 
Yeah, I've interviewed her a bunch of times. Have you? Yeah, it was delightful. We had a chance to actually they they saw me running beside the road and she could tell, of course, I mean, you sort of have there's sort of a, a look probably to I mean, when you're on some road that nobody in their right mind should be running on. That was clue number one. Yeah. And then she actually pulled over. She had a, an, another friend with her and she pulled over and I got to him. She said, by chance, are you running across the United States? It was <laughs> See, awesome. And this is the other thing to float. This is not the first time I've heard this happen, that somebody either runs into somebody running in the other direction or, <laughs> or runs into somebody running. So that's yeah. it's funny that that would happen with the 10 people who are running across the United States. You're going to run into them. And that was her. And then the other actually ran with and alongside of her. It was probably weeks three and four, weeks two and three. Another U.S. crosser that was going from west to east, Rosalind Frederick uh, is her name. And uh, then we, we took different routes. I took one route and kind of went more south on Route 66, and she kind of took a more mid-route. But anyways, it was interesting for sure. So was there were there any moments out there that stood out for you? Well, yeah, there were definitely uh, – there. I mean, as you can imagine, there's – Mountains of moments, for sure. Meeting, I mean, there's a couple of interactions with people along the run route that ended up becoming you know, significant financial partners to the vision. And so those were very meaningful when you saw somebody really take notice of why you're doing this and just say, how can I help? And I remember one guy in Quapa, Oklahoma that I met, his name was Larry. He was in a pickup truck. He, I was doing a little rest stop at the end of a dirt lane and he pulled up in his pickup truck. And I was just sitting out on a chair, putting my feet up on the tailgate of the car. And uh, he looked at me and he, he said, hey, that's a funny way to be changing a flat tire. <laughs> and I looked back at him. I said, well, I'm not changing a flat tire. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm running. And he said, where are you running to? And I said, well, if I told you, you won't believe me. And he said, try. He said, try me. And I said, New York. And of course, I'm in Quap, Oklahoma. I said, New York. And he goes, no, I don't believe you. He's a kind of an older farmer type. And uh, so we pulled out some literature to kind of told him why I was doing this. And he said, whoa. He said, and I told him about the cause and, you know, bringing clean drinking water to kids. And I showed him a picture of our sponsored child through World Vision. Her name is Winnie. And kind of told him all about World Vision and how we're the world's largest non-governmental provider of clean drinking water on the planet. And, and after he heard all that, he said, well, what can I do to help? And I said, well, you can write a check. <laughs> That's what you can do. And he did. He his actually his checkbook. He said, my checkbook's in my combine about a mile down the road on this road that you're running on. So when you run by my combine, you stop and I'll write you a check. And sure enough, I finished up my little rest break and and uh, there he was and climbed up in his combine and he became a friend of the vision that day, which was pretty cool. So, I mean, there are like dozens and dozens of, of moments like that as well as high points and then low points when I was ready to completely call it quits. But uh, it's totally memorable ones, that's for sure. Yeah, something you'll remember forever, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, and it's good because this shows that you don't have to be a youngster and you don't have to do it in 42 days, right? That's right. Well, that's right. Obviously, you can take a lot shorter and you can take a lot longer. I always tell people, they go, you know, in the end of the day, it's not about the, the miles we cover or how fast we cover them, but that we're putting one faithful step in front of the other. I mean, that really, that's not only in running, but that's a good axiom for life as well. We just, it's about faithful movement forward, both for us and for the people that we're trying to serve. Yep. Keep moving forward. Yeah. Yep, sure. All right. So um, tell us about the charity and uh, how people can help you if they want to. We're all about, there's a uh, African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go farther, go together. And so Team World Vision is all about inviting people to go farther together. That's kind of who we are. And uh, we do it, of course, to have people consider running, you know, half marathons, full marathons. Uh, last year, we had over 8,000 people 
run a full or half marathon in the United States and raised a little bit over $8 million for clean drinking water in Africa with World Vision. Then we also premiered what we call our 6K. It's called the World Vision 6K. So we have people who will obviously run endurance distances. 80% of those who run with us, though, interesting on our half and full marathon teams, 80% of them had never run a 5K before. We talk quite openly about a couch to finish line training plan. We always tell people we will bring you from the couch to the finish line and then back to the couch again. And so, again, we had over 8,000 people that did a half and full marathon. But then uh, last year, we also introduced the World Vision 6K. Uh, six kilometers is the average distance that women and children walk in the developing world for water. By far, the majority of the time, it's contaminated water that will lead to half the kids under the age of five in a village dying because of illnesses directly related to unclean water. But the 6K is that average distance. So we launched the World Vision 6K in which anybody can do it. I mean, you can walk it. You can run it. You can push a stroller. It's a very accessible distance, and we wanted to see how we could get even more people mobilized around this. So we did it last year. Uh, we did it on one day. It's called the Global 6K. Uh, it's done. We had last year, it was pretty wild. We had 8,000 participants in 150 host sites all around the country and the world. We had seven countries represented as well. People would just become a host site leader, super easy to do. You can do it in your neighborhood. You can do it at your school. You could do it at your church. You could do it at your place of business. And uh, raised about almost a half a million dollars uh, last year. This year, we're on pace. The Global 6K is uh, the first Saturday in May, on May 6th. Uh, we're on pace at that Global 6K in a month from now to have 25,000 people. So to, we're, we're going to grow from 8,000 participants to 25,000. We are growing from 150 host sites to 725 host sites around the world. And uh, we will raise, uh, we're on track to, to raise a, a million and a half dollars just through the 6K for clean water. And it's a really, it's a, it's a $50. It, it costs each participant, it costs $50 to do the 6K. $50 is what it takes to bring clean drinking water to one person uh, that lasts. And for that $50, when a person registers for the 6K, their $50 will bring clean water to a person. Uh, each participant in the 6K has a different bib. Each bib has a unique picture of a child that clean water is being brought to. So it's, we call it the, the bib that matters most. It's just a really cool concept. So you, the bib is unique. And then you also get a great uh, medal, finisher's medal for the 6K and then in a T-shirt, of course. How, of course, nothing would be complete you know, in a race without having a race tee. We feel very fortunate to see the, um, to have all an accessible distance like the 6K that anybody can do, which we're really pumped about again, and would invite anybody to do this with us. It'd be awesome. You just go to uh, www.worldvision6k.org, worldvision6k.org to get more information and uh, or to run a half or full marathon. We'd love to have uh, people join us for that. All right. Awesome stuff. I'll put the links in the uh, show notes. That's beautiful. That's Thank you, Chris. All right, man. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll see you out there in uh, Oklahoma at some point. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Well, I will tip a little jug of uh, maple syrup from New England in your honor later on today. Yeah. So the Bruins made the playoffs, too. <laughs> Which is a very big deal. That's awesome. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, Chris. Have a great one. All right. All right. Bye-bye.
terms of what we're looking at for the conditions for the runners, look, it's great, but it's going to be a little bit on the warm side. Let me show you exactly where the conditions are right now in Hopkinton. We'll take you to the numbers. It's 60 degrees on the level here in the center of town. Wind is calm, and uh, it, at times you get a puff to five or six miles an hour. And this is part of our Weather Underground Network, the exclusive partnership we have here at NBC Boston to get right down to the neighborhood, and that includes right at the start line of the Boston Marathon. All right, my friends, strap yourself in. The Boston Marathon 2017, doing the smart, boring thing. Sunday morning at the club run, six days post-Boston, I was chatting with my friends. With all the marathon training focus this spring, I hadn't been able to attend many club events. And he asked me, my friend, he said, how was the marathon? And I said, well, it was a bit too hot, so we did the smart thing, backed off, and ran easy. And he looked at me with the smile of one who has run with me for years, humorously, quizzically, and said, that doesn't sound like you. He knows me. He's right. I'm not that smart. I tend to let my emotions manage my racing. I'm not that smart. But Frank is. And we called it early. When Frank showed up in Hoppington, he had already made up his mind. In fact, he had registered for his backup race on the bus out from Boston. It was too warm to race. Frank's reticence, combined with my fresh memories of last year's dreadful 15-minute positive split, pushed my small skiff onto the shores of sensibility. There's no victory in a Pyrrhic victory, but doing the smart thing makes for a boring story. <laughs> Relative humidity is going to drop today down to about 30%, so you are talking about hydration being key always, but today the sweat won't cling to the runners, it will evaporate off them pretty quickly, and dehydration can become a bit deceptive and a bit stealthy on a day like today. I was tracking the weather from 10 days out, it gave me something to do in my taper. 10 days out, the weather looked great, 50 degrees and partly cloudy. But in the intervening week, the warm front got nudged just a smidge into Monday, and we ended up missing the racing weather by less than a handful of hours as the cold front actually started to roll in while we were exiting Newton on the backside of the hills. I was still ready to race. I trained well. I had good fitness. I was healthy. I was light and lean. The only question in my mind was whether I had the legs to go 26.2. I felt like I could have benefited from more volume and a longer taper, but I guess you always feel unready, don't you? All in all, I was ready. Before the weather changed, I thought I'd go out at a 340 pace and see if I had anything after the hills. I knew I had just done that long workout with the 90 minutes at sub race pace in the middle. So I had that. If I went for it, I would have at least a half marathon worth of 740s. But I really didn't want to death march in the second half of the race like I did last year. So even if I raced, I would race smart and try for a negative split. You know, you look over the course of the race here, starting out at 9 a.m., temperatures about 65 degrees. That'll include here in Hopkinton. Very quickly, we'll rise to about 70, but then the weather levels off. We think we'll hold it about 70 all the way to the finish line. It'll be a 70 or 71 degree finish in Boston later on as we head toward midday. And by Friday, it all started happening. I started seeing the pictures coming in from the expo. Mike Wardian and Scott Jurek hamming for Instagram. 
all the stars and celebrities cycling through my news feeds. The week leading up to the race is filled with a rotating digest of history and celebrities and preparation. The Boston Marathon is a big deal in Boston. I tapered well and deeply. I cut down to less than 20 miles a week. I held my line on my nutrition and went into the race in the low 170-pound-ish region. Same as Portland in the fall. Nice and light. Still, the last two weeks were rough for me mentally, as they always are. I had a lot of stress. I had a lot of work stress. I sprouted a beautiful coal sore <laughs> that was a physical totem to my stress and sported it for the full two weeks. As healthy as I was, my body was trying to tell me that I was not harmonious. Easter fell on Sunday before the race this year, which was odd. This meant that many local runners had to go easy on the traditional Easter dinners, and traveling runners had to miss the holiday if they observed it, or work their travel plans around it. Teresa and I went in for the expo early on Saturday. I was online to pick up my packet by 9.30 a.m. Good thing, too, because the line was wrapped around the building by the time we were leaving. Something to do with the timing of the Easter holiday pushed all the runners into the Saturday pickup window. I wore my 2013 shirt. I figured that would be a fitting tribute of some sort. With the Mark Wahlberg movie just out, 2013 was top of mind again. And I got around to watching Patriot's Day during my taper. It was okay. They seemed to be trying really hard not to go too deep, not to offend anyone. More like an episode of a cop show. I would have written a movie from the stories of the people on the course that day. And maybe I will. We were able to watch the BAA 5K finishers outside the window of the Heinz Convention Center as we waited in the packet pickup line. Ben True from Lebanon, New Hampshire, won his fourth in a row and broke his own American 5K record by two seconds with a 13.20 finish. That's pretty speedy. Molly Huddle from Providence, Rhode Island, missed four-peating herself when she got edged out by a Kenyan who chose a better line in the last 200 meters. They actually got a bit scattered because they ran into the tail end of the men's race still finishing. She came in second by two seconds with a 14.56, not too shabby. Looks like New England is getting its racing depth back. When we got up to the packet pickup line, I saw Brian, who volunteers there every year, and I gave him a big hug. He was skipping this year due to some injuries and life challenges. He'll be back. He just has to learn how to live with being slow like me. The expo was not much different than previous years. Some of the organizations, like Runner's World, opted to have pop-up booths outside on Boylston Street instead of in the bowels of the Heinz, which probably worked out well for them because it was a beautiful, warm, sunny day. Both Saturday and Sunday were sunny and in the 80s. Great weather for exploring Boston. Like I said, Teresa went in with me. She has fond memories of when my girls were little, I used to drag Katie and Teresa in with me, and they would have a blast. It was like going to the carnival for them, going to the expo. They'd eat all the samples and see all the stuff, and she still had fun eating all the free samples as we walked up and down the aisles. And I usually come in the afternoon. This early on Saturday, all the vendors were still full of energy and quite aggressive in trying to get me to try their hand creams and shoe inserts. 
but I just smiled and waved them away. What's the point? Do I have dry skin? Who cares? I bought my traditional race hat, like I do every year, twenty four ninety nine for a memory that I can wear. We were early enough that there was no line at the Sam Adams booth, and they were giving away, quite aggressively, free samples of their 26.2 brew, the special beer they brew for the race every year. And it was good. And yes, I nursed a four-ounce beer for a late breakfast. It was carbo-loading old style. I stopped by the Hoyt booth and said hi to Kathy. Rick and Dick were out on their whirlwind social schedule and not in the booth yet. As we were leaving, I ran into John Young, the Hammer, who we interviewed this year. He was a bit perturbed and told me that the line was now wrapped around the building to get in. He he didn't want to go stand in it. So we wandered down Boylston Street in the warm morning sun, happy and ready, lean and content, to the finish line to take pictures with the tourists. And people were walking by with their 5K medals. It's a cool little metal, smaller version of the unicorn metal. And we walked through the common where they were breaking down the 5K start and finish. And they were having a ceremony to open the swan boats in the public gardens. Rites of spring. Lots of people out in the sun. And we jumped on the red line and we headed home. This was my 19th Boston. In my 19 years at Boston, there have been two really hot years, 2006 and 2012. Three colder years, 1998, when I set my PR, the nor'easter year of 2008, and the hyperthermic headwinds of 2015. And that leaves 14 average years where it isn't miserably hot and it isn't unseasonably cold. In 1998, it was 50 degrees overcast and a slight drizzle. That's my racing weather, especially coming off the winter training. That's my sweet spot. Anything over 60 starts to be a problem for me for racing. Over 65, and I know I'm not built for it. There is some tribal knowledge rule of thumb that says you can deduct a certain number of minutes off your finish time for every degree over 65. I believe that. I slept great over the weekend. I don't get that nervous energy, sleepless, worry thing that some people get. I mean, I remember it from my first few races, but I don't get it. The flip side is that I don't get a big adrenaline rush either. I'm a bit jaded, I suppose. Nonplussed is another good word, which if you're nonplussed, about running the Boston Marathon, you probably need to assess your life choices. Race morning, I rolled out of bed early. I was awake anyhow. I got up and made a breakfast of coffee and oatmeal, the same thing I have every day. And Katie brought me a vente coffee home from Starbucks on Sunday night, so I had that to sip on and get the juices flowing. I do love my coffee. 
I put my race stuff on, trying not to wake the house up. I sat down with my coffee and massaged some heat into my legs, slowly feeling the muscles and the sinew and the blood, working out the knots without pushing too hard. And this is how I get the blood into the muscles for the day. It's part of my routine. I had all my stuff ready on Saturday, so there was no rushing around looking for something. They don't let you bring or check a bag in Hopkinton anymore. They give you a small, clear plastic bag for sundries. Anything you bring with you, you have to either carry through the race or throw away in Athlete's Village. I dug through my closet and found an old shirt to wear and an ancient pair of jeans. I looked like I was headed out to paint a house, not run a marathon. And as I was digging around, I found the Runzoni pasta hat from the 2000 race. I still didn't know if I was racing, so I decided to wear that old painter's hat to see if there was any magic in it. I also brought a throwaway towel, always useful to have a towel. Ask Douglas Adams if you don't believe me. I had a banana, some sunscreen, a section of the newspaper, a space blanket from the rock and roll race. I threw in my JG 13.1 finishers hoodie for good measure. All that stuff got left in Hockington. The newspaper, the banana, and the sunscreen never even got opened. For racing, top to bottom, I had my 2000 runs only painter's hat, sunglasses, Team Hoyt singlet, Brooks baggy shorts with the liner, Asics socks, Hoka Clifton's. I did not wear my chest strap nor my Garmin. I only had my old Timex Iron Man. Keep it simple. No phone. No tech. I had mixed a bottle of Yukan that I started sipping with 90 minutes to race time and another full bike bottle of Yukan that I would carry with me in the race. I didn't try to stash any supplies on the course this year. Keep it simple. I had a baggie with a handful of Enduralites rolled up with a rubber band and stuck into a side pocket, and I had a small tube of lube stuck into my key pocket and my shorts. And I used all the Enduro lights, and I probably should have brought more. And I did use the lube on the course as well. Another day at the office. It's going to be a little warm out here, but a lot of the runners say that they're ready for it. They plan to hydrate and get ready. So all these buses headed up to Hopkinton right now. The first wave has already left as we get this day underway. Reporting live in Boston, Monica Medea, NBC Boston. Teresa drove me down to meet my ride. I was riding with a van load full of moms from my running club. Strange times. Me and a van full of moms. How about that? I'm super proud of these women from our club. They're amazing people. We made it out to Hopkinton without incident and took the shuttle bus to Athletes Village, which is Hopkinton High School and its captive athletic fields. A bit like those detention centers for immigrants you see on the news, except this one is filled with jacked up runners from around the world and hundreds of porta potties. There was a flyover from the F-15s out of Cape Cod Naval Base. The announcer was prattling on. The first corrals were already loading. We staked a claim in the grass and spread out our blankets. It was a beautiful sunny day. We sprayed each other with sunscreen and had some fun getting ready, talking to all the different crews, taking pictures. I didn't see Frank, but it was okay. I had already decided to run a negative split race, to hold back and not push early, and maybe if things were okay on the course, I could race it in from Newton. Supposedly there was going to be a tailwind, but it was full sun and close to 70 now at the start. 
didn't look good. Rule of thumb, if you're sweating in the starting corral, it's probably too hot to race. Eventually they called my wave and I ambled off with the remaining ladies to the staging corrals. They stage you by wave and corral and then when the wave in front of you goes, they let you walk down to the start where the real corrals are. As I was sweating in the staging corral, looking around to see if I knew anyone, there was Frank! And he was wearing a Rolls-Royce race singlet for some reason. He used to always race in a Soviet CCCP singlet. Not because he's a Soviet, just to be ironic, I guess. But I was very glad to have found him. Standing on the warming black top with all these bodies, he proceeded to talk me out of racing. We would just go out easy and see what happened. Not worry about the pace and just have fun. Frank last ran Boston in 2013. And he was coming back from that hip resurfacing procedure and didn't have enough faith in his fitness to attack it. It was good to have him back. My life seems to be a blur of rotating training partners over the years. And it was nice to have one of the old crew back with me, keep me company. Training for marathons is a bit like sharing a foxhole. You build these close relationships that have this hard, worthy, shared experience. And then it's gone. I was in good shape, I was healthy, I was light, but Boston is a hard course in the best of conditions. It's a widowmaker when the conditions get challenging. And just like last year, it wasn't hot enough to scare people, but it was hot enough to snuff out their humanity in the high miles. And we did get a tailwind at times, but we got a headwind too. It was mostly swirling, and it was quite dry. I never got soaked from sweat because it just evaporated off. And this meant runners lost a lot more salt and water than they realized. And it's getting crowded here. Here, this is the point uh, in the whole day where a lot of people are smiling and happy. You guys happy? You excited over here? You, yes! <laughs> we have got uh, thousands of runners at this point. You can see them getting onto the buses behind me here. What happens is it's pretty organized. They've been doing this for some time. They've got buses lined up by two, and runners slowly get on. When you see that red flag, that means the bus is full. Each bus carries about 60 runners. They plan to move a good portion of the 30,000 runners in this marathon. So we're talking tens of thousands of people that they are moving from here at Boston Common all the way to Hopkinton. The drive about 40 minutes or so, as you can see here, some more people getting ready. You guys excited? <laughs> we've been meeting people. We've got to talk. We've, we've got to talk to you. I like the hair. Is this going to hold up for 26.2 miles? It holds up for 50 miles, so yeah, it'll hold up for 26.2. Have you run Boston before? This is my second year running Boston. How do you feel right now? I feel great. I had so much fun last year, I decided to come back for a second time. We'll just keep coming back until it's not fun anymore. So, having a great time out here. <laughs> That's fantastic. And where are you from? Burbank, California. Awesome. Well, have fun. Good luck on your race today. We walked our way down to the corral. I had the great fortune of bumping into my friend Eric Strand, who was taking pictures at the side of the road. He qualified but ended up with an injury and couldn't run. So we made the trip to Boston to hang out and enjoy the festivities anyhow. I made a quick run over to the last stop, Porta Potty Farm, near the start. Why not? I met up with Frank in the corral and helped him do the old trash bag fill a Gatorade bottle discreetly trick. We chatted up some of the charity runners. It was hot, and we were making the right decision, and we were off. We ran easy through the first miles, just chatting up the other runners. 
Frank would slow me down when I started to accelerate. I just focused on running with good light form and not working the quads and the downhills. It was crowded for the first couple miles, but we broke free after that. Frank would run behind me a few paces as I threaded easily through the charity packs, and I'd look over my shoulder every once in a while to see if he was still with me. It was his first time running from the charity corrals, and I explained the finer points of avoiding collisions at water tables, and uh, he was surprised when a lady abruptly threw up her arm like a salute and started walking with her watch beeping, and I explained she was a Galloway runner and doing the prescribed dance, and I showed him how much they hunch over and slow down on the uphills, any uphill. It's like a nervous tick. See an uphill, hunch forward, slow down. And we were just motoring through, chatting, having fun, trying not to race. And I'm, I am not making this up when I tell you I did not look at my watch once during the race. I started it on the start mat, and I stopped it on the end mat. That's it. That's a first for me. And we took drinks at every water table. Frank was drinking the Gatorade, and I was drinking water and sipping my way through the 24 ounces of Yukan I had with me in my bottle. At 10K, I swallowed a couple Endurolites. That was my strategy. With the preload of Yukan and the one full bottle, I thought I had enough fuel, plus my ample supply of body fat, <laughs> to go the distance. And I supplemented the fluids with a few ounces of water every mile. I'd drink one cup, probably four or six ounces every mile, and toss another one down the back of my head to stay cool. It was a good plan, since we weren't racing. Nothing could go horribly med-tent wrong. It ended up not being enough water or electrolytes, I think. As near as I can figure, I was fairly dehydrated at the end. I started showing symptoms uh, coming out of the hills. Not enough to stop me, but enough to make the uh, last few miles a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit of a double whammy for me on these hotter days. The heat makes me nauseous, and then I don't want to eat or drink. And at one point, I think it was more electrolytes than water because my stomach felt sloshy. But who knows, right? We cranked on through the half marathon, chatting to people along the course. I stopped to use a free porta potty somewhere in Framingham, I think. Met a podcast listener friend coming out of a out of the porta potty next to me, and uh, we stopped a couple times to talk to people that Frank knew in the crowd along the course. By the time we got to Natick, it was at its hottest. I would guess it was a full sun and around eighty degrees with a dry breeze and no cover. Good spring barbecue weather. Frank was putting ice cubes under his hat. He was starting to complain about not having energy, and we walked a bit at a couple of water tables. It was still pretty early in the race. We stopped to talk to Frank's parents, and they had some water, so I filled up my Yukan bottle, which was getting close to empty, diluting the contents. And I was taking Enduralites every few miles. I used them all in the race. I probably could have had more. I stayed away from the Gatorade because I didn't want to get sick from the sugar. I haven't been training with it. But in retrospect, I should have been sipping some for the sugar and the electrolytes. I had a blast in Wellesley. I high-fived all the girls with a big smile. I didn't kiss any of them because, well, in a school zone, I think that's a felony. And I did still have that attractive cold sore. <laughs> and my, but my arm was tired from high-fiving them or for the work of it. So you know that's a good day when your arm's tired from high-fiving. I was playing the license plate game to keep myself occupied. So you remember long road trips with your family when you were a kid? 
and your parents would have you hunt for different color cars or different state license plates to keep you from killing each other in the back seat? Well, I was calling out and counting the different countries that runners were from, and I think I got up to 12 or 13. So we'd be cruising along, and I'd point and shout, Ecuador! Or something like that, like a crazy person. And Frank was failing a bit, like I said, through the middle miles and when we were getting into the hills. And people were starting to drop. And with our steady pace, we were passing, more like flowing through the crowd. We'd be running together and then separate like a school of fish around a shoal and then sort of bend back together. And he stuck to my shoulder and I pulled him through. And we got a bit more serious in the hills and passed all the people walking, those who had tried to race, those who didn't know the course. You know, Boston will have its way with the unsuspecting. The local newspapers reported that over 2,000 runners were treated for the heat. We churned up heartbreak like champs, and we were on the backside heading down the slope into town before we knew it. The crowds were great. It was excellent spectating weather. The locals loved Team Hoyt, and my singlet got lots of attention. We didn't see Rick or Brian on the course, but we did have Catherine Switzer running a few hundred meters behind us. The next few miles after heartbreak were great. Frank got his mojo back, and we were dropping some good paces on the downhills. But my head was getting fuzzy, and I was a bit nauseous. Nothing awful, just enough to hold me back and wish the race was over. Then the clouds rolled in when we got past Newton. It cooled off, and we had a good good cloud cover for the end of the race. A front came through just a couple hours late. Next day was cool and wet. Perfect racing weather. C'est la vie. I slowed a bit for the last couple miles, but kept grinding. Frank pulled away, and I let him go. I wasn't feeling great. My quads were a bit sore. Up over the mass pike, down that last mile with the screaming, thundering crowd, under and right onto Hereford, left onto Boylston, and there was the finish. I stretched out my stride, and my legs felt great. No pushback at all. I didn't sprint, but I held that respectable pace through the finish. Frank was waiting for me there. I stopped my watch at 3.54. And we ran smart and finished with a four-minute negative split without any drama. I'm not sure I would have had a good day if the weather was cooler. You never know. You just have to train honestly and take what the day and the race give you. We got our medals and our space blankets and some water. I felt really shaky after we stopped running. I had classic dehydration symptoms. Nauseous, lightheaded chills. Uh, the couple block walk over to the hotel is the worst part of the race. I knew from experience it was temporary and all I needed to do was get some water and a banana and a sit down and I'd be fine. We got to the hotel room. We had some food and drink, the best shower in the world and a massage. And we celebrated as all our runners finished, some in better shape than others, but everyone accounted for. I had a couple beers and got a ride back to the train station where I met my wife for our traditional post-race meal at the Summer Shack. All in all, it was a good race. We executed exactly what the day called for. I still can't help but feel a bit empty, like I wasted all that good training. But sitting in that room with all the happy athletic moms, me with my bad heart, Frank with his hip, Gary with his foot... All of us old guys still getting up and getting it done. I was grateful and thankful for the gifts that we have been given. Like I always tell people when I'm on Heartbreak Hill and they are failing and suffering all around me, I shout out, You're on Heartbreak Hill! <laughs>
This is the Boston Marathon. This is the place that people dream about. We are the lucky ones. Smile. I have a lot to be grateful for. 19 Boston Marathons in the can. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have run slowly across the country and through the hills of Newton to the end of episode 4-364 of the Run Run Live podcast. Yeah, if I run across the country, I'm not stopping in New York City. I'm stopping in Boston. I'm stopping at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. That's where I'm stopping. I'm running the Groton Road Race this weekend, and just like that, it will be May already. And I've got to peel off some time to get my vegetable garden started. And I've been trying to get my old motorcycle on the road. I got it registered, but I ran into a bit of a snag last night. I put a new battery in and no power. Hmm. So now I'm going to have to chase around the wiring diagram with my multimeter and see if it's a fuse or a short or a ground. Eh, I'm not really designed with the patience for that. I went and gave blood this week. Again, they've been pestering me, but I needed to get through my marathon first. So my vital signs are all fantastic. I am the healthiest person alive. I had to do the uh, the mind control, the Jedi mind trick to get to jack my heart rate up over 50 for the nurse so I could avoid the red flags and phone calls. And it took a while, but they were able to get my blood out of me. And they have this soundtrack of 1970s pop music that they play. And it's a bit surreal, you know, lying there, giving your blood. And I hear those songs. And I remember specific situations where I was. For example, building a fort in the rafters of my father's garage with my buddy Dave as preteens listening to Ricky Don't Lose That Number by Steely Dan on the portable FM radio on a warm summer day in 1974. Us with our mad magazines and Farrah Fawcett posters. And now I've got to figure out what I want to do with this glorious summer lying before me like an unwrapped gift. So far, all I've committed to is to climb some mountains with Teresa, but soon enough I'll get the itch. I do love trail running. I think I'll do some more of that. What's next? I don't know. I've been trying to figure out what to do with my life. Well, all my life. There are no silver bullets. Sometimes you have the opportunity to choose epic and worthy things that in some way define you and in other ways demonstrate a worthy path to endeavors to the world. Sometimes circumstances knock you sideways and that unchosen path becomes the worthy thing. Every day... 
every mile, you get up. Whether your plan for that day works or something else happens, you grind on with as much aplomb and reason as you can, and then you get up and do it again. And someday, the crumbs of your life might lead someone else to something worthy of their own. And that's it, my friends. Whether you think you are a leader or even an exemplar, people are watching you. The universe is watching you. Get up and get it done today, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Water. I love that dirty water. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, Boston, you're my home. I romp, bump, bump. Okay.